0: You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. This is Jay Shapiro again. Uh, I'd like to uh, point out at the beginning of the program uh, uh, some historical facts. They have nothing to do with what else I have to say on this program, but I have to remind the listeners of the historical facts about Palestine, or Israel, if you will. It's worth noting that there never has been an independent Palestinian state. Palestine was Syrian, it was Roman, it was Byzantine, it was Umayyad, it was Abbasid, it was Fatimid, and then Saladin's Palestine, Mamluk, Ottoman Palestine, and British Palestine, and Hashemite Palestine. However, there never has a free Palestinian existed. That is not to say that free Palestinians have not existed. Palestinians have. They have, and they all live in Israel. The only free Palestinians are those who live in Israel. Israeli Arabs or Israeli Palestinians account for nearly a quarter of Israel's population, and they are citizens with full rights and freedoms. There are more Palestinians in the Israeli government than there are in the governments of all of Israel's neighbors combined. Although there are significant numbers of Palestinians in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, but they are not part of the governments there. And countries like Egypt and Lebanon, which at least occasionally pretend that they're representative governments, Palestinians are excluded because they still carry the non-citizen status of refugee. Saudi Arabia is a monarchy, Syria is really a monarchy, and Jordan are monarchies. Jordan, in particular, is, is worth looking at more closely. The Jordan has, is full of Palestinians none of whom are in the government there. Back in the early 20th century, the Ottoman territory was carved up with what's called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. That was between England and France. And the area called Palestine was given to the British, complied, included Gaza, Judea, and Samaria, which are now called the West Bank, and all of modern-day Jordan, compelled by Abdullah, a non-Palestinian Hashemite from Mecca, Palestine was split. 80% east of the Jordan River was called Trans-Jordan, and although it had and still has a majority Palestinian population, it was given to Abdullah as a kingdom and the king of of, uh, Jordan today is his great, great grandson. Immediately Jews who had lived in the region for centuries were forced to flee or murdered to the far side of the Jordan where it was determined that both Palestinians and Jews should have autonomy only in regions in which they constituted a majority. This was a division which the Jews accepted, and the Palestinians violently opposed. So what ended up was the establishment of a Jewish state. The, the, The Palestinians didn't set up their own state. Instead, Egypt occupied Gaza, and Jordan occupied Judea and Samaria. Jews who remained in Judea and Samaria and Gaza were either slaughtered or forced to flee, and their villages and towns were destroyed. Palestinians who remained in Israel following the conflict in 1948 were given full citizenship with all the rights and freedoms, and they remain today citizens of Israel. Israel is the only Middle Eastern country where Jews and Muslims coexist. It is the only Middle Eastern country with a commitment to human rights and it has an impartial court that upholds human rights. It's the only functioning democracy in the region, the only place where freedom. And including the freedom to disagree with the government, actually exists. There are free Palestinians. Who are the free Palestinians? The ones who live in Israel. I brought this up because I want to remind the listeners that these are the facts on the ground. The only free Palestinians are the ones who live in Israel, that is, the Arabs who live in Israel. In all the other Eastern, Middle Eastern countries, they are second-class citizens. They are only full citizens in the state of Israel, and that is something that has to be kept in mind. I want to bring up a subject that I was reminded of the other day. It had fallen I guess in the background of my memory, 18 years ago, 150,000 people formed a human chain 90 kilometers long, it stretched from Gush Katif in the Gaza Strip to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Now, what happened at that time was our government decided to give up the uh, Gaza Strip and uh, I was a correspondent for Arut Sheva, and uh, I spent a few days uh, in in the Gaza area when they were kicking the Jews out, and then I drove to Jerusalem, and during the trip to Jerusalem, it's over 90 kilometers, and there was a solid chain of Jews who were opposed to what the government was doing, standing shoulder to shoulder for over 90 kilometers. It was a, the, uh, it, it, according to the records, it wasn't the first human chain, nor the largest. Two million people once formed a human chain in Latvia and 1.5 million in Taiwan. But our human chain took place in the heat of the summer and I drove along, there were many people there. They were carrying Israeli flags, there were young people and old people. Everyone was excited to be part of a special moment for the Jewish people. The reason for this human chain was to protest Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's disengagement plan and to support the people who were threatened with being uprooted from their homes, which they eventually were. Some of them have lived in the Gaza settlement block for three generations, they had put down roots, and they built thriving and agricultural settlements and beautiful synagogues. People joined the chain. Although police and cars and motorcycles drove past every now and then, the protest was quiet and orderly. Ninety kilometers of order didn't venture onto the middle of the road as buses and cars drove out. Organizing the chain was supposed to have taken three months of planning, but it could be that many people only decided to join at the last minute. People stood for hours. It was a very hot day, and uh, in, in a sense, it was surprising how quickly the time went by because everybody was friendly. The, uh, incidentally, the uh, event took place coincidentally at the same time as the Likud Opposition Convention in Tel Aviv. At that time, labor was the government. The, uh, nevertheless, there were supposed to be 400 members of the Central Committee and 20 members of Knesset from other parties, like the National Religious Party and the National Union, participating in the standing by the roadside. What made the time pass quickly was the fact that everyone was discussing the disengagement with their neighbors, people were meeting for the first time from every part of Israel. The majority of the people were religious, and the majority of the people were right wing, but there were also some secular Israelis. And there was moderation. There, there was this deep attachment to this land. Did not, did not, uh, uh, did, did not prohibit compassion for the Pirate of Palestinians then the Palestinians themselves were suffering from their own corrupt leadership then and now. They were will, uh, their leadership is unwilling to compromise or to adhere to any peace plan. So even when the Oslo Accords had offered them large parts of the West Bank, and Prime Minister Barak at Camp David Othgur uh, says, it was man most of Jerusalem's old city, the... Um, and Yasser Arafat declined to negotiate, and the second in the Fada broke out, Jews being murdered. So uh, the, the, but this was less of, less of a political demonstration at that time than it was an ideological one. Rather than being against anything, a hundred and fifty thousand people were expressing what they were for love and attachment to Eretz Israel. Many were supporting t-shirts and caps with the slogan, Ha'am in Gush Katif. The people are with Gush Katif. So uh, it was really sad. They sang Hatikva. it was very emotional. But at the end, it didn't matter, the uh, No speeches, no high drama, just 150,000 people had stood together shoulder to shoulder, expressing their love and support for the Israelis of the Gaza Strip. They were not successful, they didn't prevent the disengagement, and we now have the result of the disengagement. We now have a war, and it's the result of that disengagement, and the terrible mistake of our government. By the way, I of that, I don't mention it, I don't know if I mentioned it more recently in my program, but you know, because of the, um, the Oslo Agreement, Rabin and uh, Arafat and Shimon Peres won the Nobel Prize. Now it turns out that the whole thing was a mistake. I'm curious whether there is any formal way of rescinding the Nobel Prize. Generally, the Nobel Prize is given to whatever the field, it's given in such a way. It's not, it's not reversible. somebody wins a Nobel Prize for chemistry or physics, or what have you, they've made an accomplishment, they're rewarded for it. But the Peace Prize was given to Arafat, Rabin, and Paris. For, for for the for the agreement they made, the Oslo agreement, but the Oslo agreement has not only really turned out not to be peace, but has actually turned out to be war. So the question is, do the people do the people who got the peace prize have to return it? I don't know. Very curious. Maybe I'll write a letter to the Nobel Committee. I don't know if they've ever faced this kind of situation. So. Uh, If I can find out anything about it, I'll let let the listeners know. I want to say something in response to the fact that there are people uh, rallying against Israel all over the United States. I saw in the news that there were big pro-Palestinian rallies uh, in Philadelphia, New York, and uh, Los Angeles, and Chicago, even in Texas. There was a big rally uh, and near the University of Pennsylvania, which is my alma mater. So that's sort of sad. But I want to say something. The Palestinian terrorism against Jews started before there was an Israel. In British Mandate Palestine, decades before the founding of Israel, Arabs were attacking Jews, particularly one of the worst cases in 1929. And the city of Hebron. The claim that Jews and Arabs got along for hundreds of years until the rise of Zionism and its policies is simply historically inaccurate. The excuse that Israeli policy, policies are so harsh that Palestinians have been left with no choice but to practice violence against Israel is simply false. Yet the only happy Palestinians are the ones who live in Israel. Palestinians have violently attacked Jews for centuries, even before they were called Palestinians. They, uh, up until the the, the 1950s, I think it was, they, they, they were simply called Arabs and this was called Southern Syria. The choice to attack Jews in their state is unjustifiable and an act of evil. There is no other way to characterize it. The Jewish people have opened their arms to live peacefully with all people. Anyone wishing to attack and kill Jews is not doing so because they're threatened. You can live alongside the Jews, and a lot of Palestinian Arabs who live in Israel know this. They even are part of our government and our uh, uh, judicial system. So Israel and the Jewish people have been unjustifiably attacked. The Jewish state did nothing to bring this attack on itself, nor it want a war with, it, with these people. The The attack itself was evil. The Palestinians who attacked the Jewish people chose evil and are therefore characterized as evil. By the way, the, um, I once saw it, it was something by... The chief rabbi of uh, England years ago was asked, why is there evil in the world? And he thought about it, he said, the answer is so that we should fight it. But unfortunately, evil can be very damaging. And because of evil, people can die. The uh, respect of our preference to want a world without evil in it, The Jewish people must recognize we are facing evil right now, face to face with real evil. It is the Jewish state's responsibility to rid the world of this evil, not just for its own sake, not only for the sake of Israel, but to follow the Jewish people's tradition of being a light unto the nations. Destroying Hamas in Gaza is our responsibility as being a light unto the nations? A model how nations should protect themselves is what Israel is now doing. Israel must destroy Hamas. What's going to happen to the Gaza Strip after which is really immaterial at the moment. You don't have to worry about what's going to be there. We'll work something out afterwards. Right now, the Hamas there is supported by Iran. Uh, Iran threatens Iran, together with China and Russia, uh, threaten the world. There's no two ways about it. It is our job here to face the evil of Hamas and to destroy it who will have an influence on what the United States does and what the others do also. It turns out that little Israel has become the front in the struggle for Judaic Christian society and for the freedom of the Western world. I, want to, I don't want to sound dramatic, but that is really what it is all about now. now. It's not just a struggle here in Israel against Hamas. It's a struggle of e- against evil, Our, and we are in the front line of that struggle. We must win for the sake of Western society. So up till now, it looks like that is what the American government has understood. They're supporting us. Let us hope they don't weaken in their support. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few things about American Jews and American universities based on a number of articles I've read this week that are very different than what's been written about or even mentioned in the past about American Jews and the big donations that they give to American universities. So it apparently it seems that American Jewish leaders were pretty much caught off guard by a dangerous situation in the universities that apparently has been bubbling beneath the surface that they've been ignoring for a long time or that they simply were unaware of the um, the, the question you can ask has to do with the rising anti-Semitism on the campuses. Uh, I, I include, by the way, I, I may have mentioned this week uh, before, one of the worst campuses or active uh, anti-Semitism is the University of Pennsylvania, which is my own alma mater. At any rate, The question you have to ask yourselves is, could anything not have been done uh, to prevent this rise of anti-Semitism on the campuses? Could it have been averted? Do American Jewish leaders have uh, to facilitate money which is going to causes that have essentially undermined the safety of Jewish students? The um, the, uh, the time has come for Jewish federations and Hillel groups, and the anti, even the Anti Defamation League in particular, to have to reconsider the priorities, their programming, and the alliances which they make. The spotlight is on American Jewish and college and university campuses where protests and threats have become outright anti-Semitic and they have become dangerous places for Jews. The anti-Semitism is at an all-time high in America, apparently also in Britain, but particularly in published areas. So as a consequence of this new reality, which is unpleasant, A large and growing number of Jewish donors to major colleges are starting to withhold their financial support support from institutions from which either they graduated or they intend to send their own children and their own grandchildren. To To put it mildly, investments in major American universities have turned sour. The idea of creating a legacy for their children has become a bad investment as the very institutions they funded are not welcoming Jews, nor are they safer Jews. So what's happening is that people, Jews, are withdrawing funding from these organizations that are refusing to condemn what's the crime that happened here, of what Hamas did. And so it turns out. For example, I'll give you a couple of examples which I saw. A, a fellow named Leslie Wexler, who's the billionaire founder of something called Limited Brands, he sever, severed his ties with Harvard. And uh, another guy uh, named Henry Suyake, has quit the board of Columbia Universities because a hundred professors of Columbia signed a letter in defense of students defending Hamas, an an alumnus of Harvard, um, called upon his alma mater, Harvard, to publish the list of students who signed a letter stating the Israeli regime is entirely responsible for all the unfolding violence. And this guy, whose name is Ackman, a millionaire, billionaire, explain, I don't want any supporters of terrorism in our company. In other words, he wants to know whose people are who signed these anti-Israel letters to make sure that if they come to his company looking for work, they are not going to find work. So what is counting their losses, these generous philanthropists and successful businessmen are rethinking their investments in institutions that no longer re- represent their ideals and are no longer safe for Jews. And uh, they, they want to know who the students are who are anti Israel because they make sure they don't want to hire them. Even if investing in American universities were not a bad investment, the question is whether it's a smart investment. Because the question is, do the universities even need the money? American donors have started to ask these questions. It's heartening to see people th- rethinking donations. There are some facts to consider, and I found this really interesting, having graduated from an Ivy League college myself. There are 70 in America. There are 79 private colleges and universities with endowment funds over $1 billion. For example, Harvard has endowments of $49 billion. There are 50 public colleges and universities with endowment funds of over $1 billion. The uh, University of Texas leads this group with $42 billion. Analyzing in another way, there are 20 universities with endowments of more than $1 million per student. These institutions, at least 150 of them, earn more on their interest income from their accounts than most people earn in a lifetime. They have fund managers earning tens of millions of dollars a year. Universities today in America are big business. Their endowments far exceed the budgets of some developing countries and of entire government offices that a developed nation has like Israel. Now, there's no doubt the universities do good work. But that is not a sufficient criterion for supporting them financially. There are such big businesses that it's even hard to comprehend how much such donations are tax deductible. When you give money to a university, you're essentially giving to a business. So in light of what's happening on the American campuses, that it's time to consider what One's philanthropic priorities and investments are, and what they ought to be. It would seem to me that this huge amount of money that they've been giving to universities would do a lot good if it was given to various places in Israel. So there's no doubt that American Jews have to rethink what what they really want to do. Do they want fund institutions at any level? The, uh, it's fallen, to the, where Jewish life is threatened, there are violent assaults on Jews, and it could well be that these guys who are given to the universities won't be able to send their own children and grandchildren into these schools because they won't be safe. Is it in the endowment of chairs and research that have been kidnapped by violent extremism? So if you're going to invest, you should invest in Jewish life, invest in Israel, in the future of the Jewish people, and invest through those organizations that are most effective and efficient users of the dollars that you have. The universities no longer need them. It's interesting. Uh, Along these same lines, uh, the... um, the Jewish organizations. I'm not talking about the universities. I'm talking about the Jewish um, Jewish organization. Now you talk about the Jewish federations. You talk about the Hillel Foundation. You talk about the Anti Defamation League. They must reconsider their priorities. They must reconsider their programming, and they must reconsider who they alliance with. So the the the. A lot of American Jews, a lot of American organizations gave money to Black Lives Matter, to colleges and universities. Some even gave money to charities that once helped Jewish immigrants, like HIAS, and now it facilitates the integration of immigrants who are not Jewish and will make American policies less pro-Israel over time and the latest seeds for anti-Semitism. When I was a kid, the Hias, Hebrew Immigrant Age Society, helped only Jews. Today, it helps very few, if any, Jews. It gives to all these immigrants, some of, some of them who make policy eventually that are anti-Israel. So, also, polls are showing support for Hamas in opposition to Israel among especially young American adults. Prior to what happened on October 7th, it was unimaginable that in America there would be so much support for Hamas and the Jewish power in the U- yeah, in the U.S. could be so diminished. Every Jewish organization in the United States must we focus and reconsider what it is trying to accomplish with the money it gets primarily from American Jews? It's, it, it's interesting. It's pointed out they had this march for Israel in Washington back you know, a couple of weeks ago, and everybody came with different motives. Some came because of Israel, and, uh, they, and they wanted just to support Israel. Some became because of the anti-Semitism that's uh, that's going. Some came because of the complicity of university administrations with Hamas supporters and uh, the failure to protect Jewish students on the campus. No one could have imagined the full extent of anti-Semitism that existed in the United States and now has become uncovered. Organizations that fight anti-Semitism, and the organizations of the Conference of Presidents, major Jewish organizations, must acknowledge they did something wrong uh, if unmasked anti-Semitism has gotten this bad. We knew, everybody knew, that the government's Qatar and Saudi Arabia were pouring tons of money onto American universities. Yet, like the missiles fired from Gaza, the, we thought the problem would just go away. Meanwhile, millions of young minds have been corrupted in these universities, and, and it's not good. In America now, they must wage a war against anti-Semitism. Because it could well be that this window of opportunity that followed what happened on October 7th might be closing. Now, it's just like Israel must destroy Hamas. While while we have support in the United States, at the same time, American Jewish organizations must act before the tide turns against them. It's interesting. There are all kinds of groups, uh, Jewish groups, that didn't get along with each other. They should abandon whatever their platforms were and be united against a common foe. There's no doubt that American Jews must unite in an effort to turn out these horror, uh, what turned out to be a horrible failure into success, because otherwise American Jews would not have a future in the United States. If the universities are turning out people who are anti-Semitic, there is a big problem. The bottom line is that the financial resources of American Jews must be go to, to help the future of the Jewish people. Do they want to continue funding institutions in which debate and dialogue have fallen hostage to threats to Jewish life? And uh, at, at these schools with their children, their grandchildren won't be welcome? the uh, Jewish money go must go toward the Jewish future. So the American Jews have to rethink where they're spending their money. And by the way, since I'm talking about what Jews have to do against anti-Semitism, there was a, uh, an article in the paper the other day that... Uh, uh, in uh, England, in London uh, metropolitan area, there was, they found, the police report, there's been a 1,350% 1, 1, increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes. So what happened was, last week, on Sunday, uh, Jews marched through London and then identifying themselves as Jews and, and um Against the violence there, the um, there were over a hundred and five thousand people here in the march there, according to police, uh, guarded by nearly one thousand police officers. What, what is heartening is there is tremendous support from non-Jewish people. The um, they have a uh, organization called the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. They planned this march of uh, all kind of community groups, and um, they chose particular places in London to do the marches because uh, they have historic influence. If you don't know British history, uh, uh, I I didn't realize this. They marched um, uh, uh, at a place um, uh, called uh, Cable Street, I guess called the. Uh, Back in 1936, there was a battle between the British Union of Fascists, and uh, they had uh, was headed by a guy named Oswald Mosley, and he had 15,000 black shirts, Nazi types, and they fought. They were fought off by the citizens of East London. So, um, although, by the way. There was tremendous attend- attendance at the Jewish uh, rally in London this week. The Jewish BBC employees uh, are told that the, the event is controversial and said its staff should not attend. So that's how BBC tweets anti-Semitism. So there are unprecedented levels of anti-Semitism in the United Kingdom. And uh, one day before the march, London's Metropolitan Police arrested a number of pro-Palestinian protesters that had displayed Nazi symbols. And uh, so uh, the, uh, this, is, this anti-Semitism is rising in London. The, uh, the, it, it's a bad... Uh, they did a survey of Amer- of British Jews, and they found that a total of 69% of British Jews said they were currently less inclined to show visible signs of their Judaism. Half of British Jews have considered leaving the United Kingdom due to anti-Semitism since October 7th. More than 6 in 10 British Jews have either personally experienced a witness an anti-Semitic incident since October October seventeenth. <coughs> Only sixteen f- percent of British Jews believe that the police treat anti semitic anti-Semitic hate crimes are other forms of hate crimes. And a large majority, ninety percent of British Jews say they would avoid traveling to a city center if a major anti-Israel demonstration was taking place there. So the sad news is the Jews do not feel safe in London. That uh, that is very sad, really true. And that's, these are the facts on the ground. So this is the information which came as a rather shocking to me, but it's in the papers. And it has to be reported. It doesn't get big headlines even here in Israel, but I think people should know about them. Uh, I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi, this is Betsy Penn from Phoenix, Arizona, and I love Israel News Talk Radio for the interesting interviews, accurate information, spiritual guidance, political insight, humor, and passion for the truth. Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. And as I always tell my listeners, I am not a particular expert on anything, but I want to say a few things about what will happen in Gaza after Israel leaves from some of the things I've read this week by all kinds of experts and supposed experts. Right now, Israel is in the middle of a war, and uh, People all around are trying to figure out what is supposed to happen uh, after this is over. Israel has said, we're going to destroy Hamas. The raises questions over whether Israel can ever achieve the aims, which are to demilitarize and deradicalize the Palestinian territory. Now, there are in Gaza more than 2 million people. And um, so the question is, what are you going to do? Right now, there's a pause in the fighting. The the American president has announced that he wants to bring the more moderate Palestinian authority there. The Palestinian Authority rules in the so-called West Bank they were kicked out of Gaza back in the early 2000s by uh, Hamas. They're, they ruled the West Bank, but they only ruled because they're, they're supported by the Israeli army. Otherwise, the radicals, Arabs, would have kicked them out, too. So um, the, uh, the, the, they haven't built a Palestinian state anywhere, so what's supposed to happen next? The, uh, the range of options after the fighting is over and uh, is really wide. Unlike the United States, our government seeks to foster a young technocratic leadership inside Gaza using Arab money, with U.S. guidance and Israeli security they will build something like Dubai on, on the Mediterranean, according to senior official, um, Israeli officials. The Palestinian Authority, on the other hand, says it won't discuss the future without a ceasefire. But uh, the, um, the, it's hard to believe that the Palestinian Authority will return to Gaza on the back of Israeli tanks. The European Union supports its return. The uh, one official from the European Union said uh, it could border up its, uh, it could uh, beef up its border control mission and uh, top officials from the European Union have been holding discussions with officials uh, and with key Arab states. So uh, There are some European and U.S. officials say the only way forward is a multinational or United Nations force with an emphasis on Arab troops. Governments in Jordan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia say they will not put boots on the ground. Jordan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia are not going to use their troops to uh, control the peace in the Gaza area. The uh, the uh, they've said that so uh, that leaves an option of a force like the one that exists now in Lebanon and in Haiti, but uh, they're ineffective. The a the uh, Israel must draw a conclusion what to do after this war. Israel pulled its forces and settlers out of Gaza in 2005. I remember this because I was there. It was very unpleasant. So after the on its forces, 17 years ago, the Palestinians could have constructed factories and farms and hotels, and they could have made it a paradise. Instead, Hamas, which won the legislative elections a year later and took control by force, instead, they invested in building rockets and underground terror tunnels, training thousands of terrorists to kill and massacre, while leaving the population of Gaza itself impoverished. For years, people from Gaza have been crossing into Israel every day for employment, because Hamas does not provide employment for its own people. So the lesson is that Israel must never again leave neighboring territory in the hands of Palestinian security forces, because what has happened will be terrorists will take over. The the model really is Japan and Germany after World War II, You have to do what they did then was they destroyed the existing authority and they created a new entity backed by an aid package and an educational system. Germany today is so different than it was 100 years ago. Japan today is so different than it was 100 years ago because when the Americans took over, they took control of the educational systems, and saw to it that these countries became more like liberal Western democracies. democracies. The, but some Ab leaders said they paid to rebuild Gaza three times already. Every time there was a conflict with Israel and the uh, Arab countries put in money to rebuild Gaza after a lot of it was destroyed by Israel, and then they all started back the same way they were. So it's time to, I believe, it's time to abandon the two-state solution and find another approach. The uh, people must come up with a different state The two-state solution is dead, although you hear people repeating it all the time. uh, um, Biden says that ground rules for what should happen next include no forcible displacement of Palestinians, no post-war siege or blockade of Gaza, and no reduction in its territory. That's what the American president says, which is kind of interesting. Now, Israel, on the other hand, has been pressing to move Gazans, at least temporarily, into Egypt or other Arab countries so Israel can complete its military operation and limit civilian casualties. Israel says, get the people out of the way so we can finish the job. Egypt, on the other hand, refuses on the grounds in the past. Israel drove Palestinians from their homes and may not let them back and the Egyptians don't want them. Israel denies that, but says it plans to create a buffer zone inside Gaza so that the militants are kept farther than the communities. In other words, Egypt doesn't want the Palestinians back into Egypt, into the Sinai. So uh, and trying to plan what's next, you should look at recent history. The Palestinian Authority was in charge of Gaza from 1994 to 2007. In the 2006 legislative election, Hamas speak by Fatah, which, the main, which was the main party of the Palestinian Authority. It then began pressuring Fatah officials, and they ended up at a violent civil war. Hundreds were killed, and the Palestinian Authority was exiled from the Gaza Strip, and it only exists now in the West Bank. And the only reason it remains in existence is because it's protected by the Israeli army. So, there uh, believe it or not, there are some 25,000 Palestinian Authority officials still in Gaza, some of whom work within the Hamas uh, government, and others who've collected salaries for the last 16 years while never showing up for work. They stay home. The, in theory, these they're, they're civil servants and they could form a new governing structure. <coughs> and they come up with some names who could take over their the uh, one is Mohammed Bahalan, who was a top Palestinian authority figure in Gaza before Hamas took over. In the meantime, he's living in exile in the since 2011. And people talk about another guy who lead them. It's called Marvin Baghoudi. The problem with Baghudi is he's been in Israel prison for two decades, convicted of five counts of murder. Now he's still influential in the West Bank, believe it or not. The so Israel would have to be willing to release him. He's in Israeli jail with a life sentence, so that seems highly unlikely. The uh, the Palestinian Authority itself, uh, Mohammed Abbas, uh, who was supposed to be running for election, I think 15 years ago, is. A, he, he's held off having elections and he's corrupt and they're inefficient. The uh, Israeli officials say the authorities' return would be a recipe for disaster, so they can't allow the Palestinian Authority go back into Gaza. There's so many variables. First of all, we don't know when the war will end. How much will be left standing Right now, you see the pictures coming out of Gaza. The northern part of Gaza is being flattened by the Israeli army. The question, of course, was whether the fighting was, will uh, spread to Lebanon. So it, it, they can't do any planning now. now. The, it isn't even clear who the decision makers will be. Now, many expect that the war ends, Netanyahu will be forced to resign for having overseen the security lapse that happened now. The, the, this, this government is, is a right wing government, it's nationalistic, but if, if Netanyahu and the top people quit, maybe they'll have an election. We have no idea what will happen. But it's not clear, even if we have a new administration what would they do with Gaza? A poll was taken by Israel's Channel 12 last week, and only 10% of Israelis said they favored bringing the Palestinian Authority back into Gaza. So 30% favored an international force. It's not clear much, however, this Abbas is now 88 years old. Uh, Will he remain in office? Who might replace him? Uh, by the way, the same thing could be said of Biden, who's 81, and he's facing a tight re-election in one year, possibly against Donald Trump, who's campaign, compl- campaigning partly on a platform of isolation, suggesting that the United States military engagement abroad be decreased. So Biden is a great supporter of Israel. Right now, there are two carrier-led combat fleets, in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf, to warn Hezbollah and Iran not to jump into the war with Israel. It's a, another, another issue, of course, is what will be left of Gaza physically. Much of Gaza's cities in ruins. Gaza's inhabitants are mostly the descendants of refugees, and now they're homeless themselves. Now, their core needs have been taken care of by the UN, like uh, health and education, but we don't know what's going to be afterwards. The uh, According to the World Bank, Gaza has near universal literacy, much higher than in neighboring Egypt, let alone poor countries like and, uh, Sudan and Chad. Interesting a very high literacy rate in, in Gaza, and they also have a uh, uh, their rates of infant mortality and life inspe- expectancy are better in Gaza than in a bunch of uh, Muslim countries. But there's no doubt that the impact of this war will be devastating. The UN Development Program has already forecast there are some 390,000 jobs have been lost so far in that area. So the, the economy could shrink maybe 12%. Poverty could rise by a third. The area could be set back 15 years. More than two-thirds of the people in Gaza have been displaced. So you can't think about the end game much depends on the final outcome of the war and the the degree to which Hamas Hamas is weakened. That Israel is turning Gaza into a reconstruction site that will consume whoever is in power for years to come. It's hard to see who would wield the power beyond Israel. Israel says it trusts no one else to make Sure, Hamas isn't rebuilding its forces. Israel plans on having its troops moving freely in and out, which will protect the border communities it plans to rebuild. But if the the Israel's is right now interested in rebuilding the communities that were destroyed back in early October. And to see to it, there's no longer no, any Hamas there. The uh, If a local government body does emerge, uh, it might resemble parts of the West Bank where Palestinian officials handle civil matters and Israeli troops are responsible for security. uh, Now, the Palestinians have been complaining about that. They say Israeli troops humiliate the officials who are dismissed by the population as toadies and agents of Israel. By the way, I myself have served in the West Bank and uh, it's interesting when you stand at a roadblock and we had instructions that you have to search uh, uh, the cars of Arabs, but if a car shows up in which a sheikh or the head of a village is sitting in the back seat, uh, you, you could ask the driver for his identity Card, but you can't ask the guy in the back seat because you can't insult him. It's all it's all different story. And I've had personal experience over there. So, so what's going to happen? Uh, it, the, uh, it's interesting. The questions of whether the events since October 7th have made them more or less in favor of coexistence with Israel Nine out of ten Palestinians, according to their own uh, consensus, nine out of ten Palestinians said they're less in favor of of, uh, of uh, Israel ruling over them. So uh, Israel has to look primarily on our own security calculations without expecting cooperation from anyone else. The other Arab countries don't want to get involved and there is no local leadership and Israel is responsible for the security of Israel and that means Israel must keep a tight fist on Gaza after this war is over. As long as there is no stability in Gaza, Israel can rely on nobody. These are the facts on the ground. What we have to worry about What Israel has to worry about is its own security needs. And what's going to happen in Gaza is still wide open. It's all kind of speculation, all kind of people uh, uh, giving their opinion, but the subject is wide open. Nobody knows what will happen in Gaza after this war is over. What we have to worry about is the safety of Israel and we, we in Israel rely on our government to take care of our safety. What's going to happen in Gaza, how as far as how it's going to be governed, to a certain extent, is not our business. We, we don't care, really, who rules there, as long as we're safe, and that they don't produce terrorism the way, the way they have done so far. So it's a really tender and touchy situation. Nobody, none of of the so-called experts has an answer. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and uh, I came across an article that was buried away in a local newspaper, and it came as a tremendous surprise to me, and I want to share the information with the listeners. You know, Israel uh, has a lot of friends around the world, It has a lot of enemies around the world. But uh, it could well be that many of the people, countries that are not friendly to Israel uh, do not take an active part in hostilities against Israel. But it turns out that there is one country that indeed uh, takes part in these hostilities. It was really surprising to me, but it turns out that we have a problem with North Korea, of all places. They found out that Hamas and its attack on Israel used weapons that were made in North Korea. On October 19th, the Associated Press reported on information provided by South Korean officials that Some of the weapons captured by Israel uh, that Hamas was using were a rocket-propelled grenade uh, called an RPG that was made in North Korea. North Korea has long supported Palestinian militant terrorist groups and North Korean arms have previously been documented amongst supplies that were uh, caught on their way to the um, to the Hamas. Based on video imagery on the October seventh assault, 7th the terrorist group was employing North Korean Type 58 self-loading rifles. Which is a variant of the Kalachnikov that was so, it's an assault rifle that was uh, developed uh, by the Soviet Union. In other words, it's highly likely that at least some of the Israelis who were murdered by Hamas died at the hands of weapons provided by North Korea. Indeed, on October 26th, a French uh, news agency quoted an Israeli military official as saying that 10% of the weapons used by Hamas in the attacks on Israel had originated in North Korea. And it turns out that South Korean military intelligence sources concur with that. Hamas is believed to be directly or indirectly linked to North Korea in various areas, such as weapons trade, tactical guidance, and training. In North Korea, of all places, North Korea made 122-millimeter multiple rocket launchers were provided to an armed group later to Hamas, and um, artillery shells marked Bang 122 the same as ammunition used by North Korea, were found on the Israel-Gaza border. So it turns out that in addition to providing Hamas with the uh, means to murder Jews, they may have assisted with the know-how. The, the back in December 2016, according to a report that I'm reading, Kim Jong-un, Head of North Korea publicly presided a military training exercise of North Korean paragliders, simulating an assault on South Korean presidential residence in Seoul, South Korea. And that tactic is precisely what Hamas used as part of its coordinated attack on Israel on October. So there's a strong possibility that this North Korean know-how was passed on to Hamas. So that that, that came as a big surprise to me. I didn't see anything. The, the article, a very small article in the back pages of a local newspaper. The, uh, and furthermore, nearly a decade ago, in 2014, The United United Kingdom uh, newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, reported that Hamas had made a down payment to North Korea to acquire missiles and communications equipment as part of a larger arms deal. And it said that Hamas has forged close links with North Korea, which is keen to support groups that are opposed to Western interests in this region the uh, so we have North Korea uh, supporting Hamas, which came to me as a uh, really as a tremendous surprise. the uh, there's further information from uh, particularly from British newspapers turns out that these ties between Hamas, the terrorists and North Korea go back to the 1970s because at that time, North Korea provided weapons to Yasser Arafat, as well as training of terrorist groups. So by any measure, North Korea has shown itself to be nothing less than an enemy of Israel. It has close ties with Iran and Syria, has backed Hamas and Hezbollah, and provide arms and know-how to those who seek to destroy the Jewish state. So it turns out that North Korea is an active enemy of Israel. So it's pretty essential that Israel take a more forceful public stand against North Korea. To uh, the and also in parallel. Israel should strengthen relations with South Korea, which can serve as an important partner in trying to contain North Korea's uh, Middle East uh, mischief. And we must raise, I believe, greater awareness about North Korea's support for groups such as Hamas, which essentially underlines that the regime in North Korea is a force for instability, not only in the Far East, but around the globe. Simply put, North Korea has Jewish blood on its hands. And uh, that is a fact, something I didn't realize till I saw this small article in the paper. I wanted to share this information with the listeners. It came as a real surprise to me. I've mentioned previously that uh, what's happening on the campuses in the United States against Israel is something that, I don't know, could be considered surprising since the campuses have changed. Even before the uh, Israel started responding to what had happened, the uh, the a campaign of defamation and incitement against Israel began on the campuses in the United States. For example, uh, in the second week of October, members of something called the Department of Women and Gender Studies at Syracuse University published a statement of solidarity with the Palestinian people as it said in their struggle against Israeli settler colonialism and occupation, so that's Syracuse University. Now these self-proclaimed feminists didn't see fit to condemn the barbaric acts of rape committed by Hamas against Israeli women. Uh, the um, they had no, uh, it, they didn't issue any solidarity with the young Israeli mothers who were burned alive while holding their infants. That's uh, at Syracuse. At Harvard University, 34 pro-Palestinian student organizations published an open letter declaring that they held Israel entirely responsible for the massacre. A few days later, about 20 pro-Palestinian students at Columbia University Signed a letter of solidarity that called the view that the actions of Palestinian fighters uh, is, uh, uh, the against the the inhumane siege imposed on them by Israel at George Washington University. Messages such as glory to our martyrs and free Palestinians from the river to the sea were projected. Onto the walls of the campus at Northwestern University, members of something called the Students for Justice in Palestine issued a statement asserting that Israel has no right to claim that it was the victim of a massacre, since the attack was the result of the Palestinian quest for self-determination. University of Virginia branch of uh, of the same group, Students for Justice in Palestine, said they support the right of Palestinians to resist the occupation of the land by whatever means. Now, this is what's been happened at American universities since with the attack on Israel. So the uh, the It's modern anti-Semitism directed toward Israel and against Jews in general. um, What these people are doing should not be misconstrued as legitimate criticism of Israeli policy. It is a blatant attempt to undermine Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. And to make matters worse, In the majority of cases, the response of university presidents to these anti-Semitic expressions within their institutions was tainted by political correctness, supposedly expressing solidarity with the suffering sometimes of the Israeli as well as the Palestinians. Now, anti-Semites in general on U.S. campuses in particular can be categorized into three groups. There's classic anti-Semites, modern anti-Semites, and what can be called, it was a guy named Boaz game Gang, who uh, is the president of uh, Reichman University here, said the third group is the useful idiots. The classical anti-Semites are those who have inherited the ancient of Jews. They're individuals who have never encountered a Jew in their lives. have been raised and educated on the foundation of, of blood libels against Jews. The majority of modern anti-Semites are Arabs and Muslims who are instinct, instinctively and vehemently opposed to the existence of the state of Israel. However, the largest and most significant group is the third group, the useful idiots. Uh, What is a useful idiot? It's a naive individual susceptible to manipulation, historically associated with communist activists operating in Western countries. The useful idiots are often compassionate people Champion the cause of those they ex- perceive as exploited or underdogs. The problem is that many among these useful idiots lack a comprehensive understanding of the the age the uh, the, the thing they are will unwittingly supporting. Many of the useful idiots on American campuses suffer from white guilt syndrome, characterized by a collective sense of culpability for the human suffering of various population groups all over the world due to uh, alleged racist behavior and colonialist uh, policies. So the uh, uh, anti-Semitic manipulation thrives among these uh, Useful idiots, promoting the notion that Zionism embodies colonialist ideals purportedly to rob the native inhabitants of their land, in this case, to rob the Palestinians of their land. Now, this perspective, of course, disregards any historical context and ignores the continued physical presence of the Jewish people in Israel, in their homeland, and the fact that the Jews are indigenous to this land. The prevailing issue on U.S. campuses today revolves around the ignorance of useful idiots who align themselves with modern and classic anti-Semites. The animosity toward Israel and the Zionism has transcended into a widespread hatred of Jews and has become a, uh, uh, among progressive liberal circles as something that they're supposed to do. Uh, it's, it's, it happens in other countries too, Western countries, but it's primarily in the United States. And this trend is further fueled by demographic shifts and the gra- rapid growth of the Muslim populations in European countries, which is reflected in voting patterns, and there's, there's, it exacerbates the polarization between the radical left and the extreme right. So uh, you got to remember the extreme right uh, holds anti-immigration views and uh, anti-Jewish views to begin with. So the problem, uh, according to Boaz Gnor, of my, the problem of modern anti-Semitism, especially the propaganda by useful idiots, will not go away as long as there is a large number of academics around the world who insist on fueling the incitement and promoting the anti-Zionist, anti-Israel narrative. These professors act deliberately, to brainwash and inflame their students with lies, half-truths, without explaining the overall picture or at least presenting the Israeli narrative. Many make no effort to hide their agenda. And for example, I quoted in the beginning this uh, statement put out by this women's group in uh, Syracuse University, and they said, and I quote, As feminist teachers, we are committed to creating classroom environments that foster critical and anti-racial thinking. To you, our students, we pledge to continue to teach what is elsewhere unteachable." teachable So what we have is that the leaders of universities around the world, especially in the United States, really have to prevent the abuse of academic platforms for systematic indoctrination, and that's what it is, indoctrination, that could lead to terrorism and anti-Semitic hate crimes. False claims of freedom of expression and academic freedom cannot justify pushing forth anti-Semitism, but the commitment By university presidents to stop this kind of thing is not for the sake of Israel, it's not for the sake of the Jews or for or historical justice, but rather for the sake of their students. They must fulfill the important role of any institution of higher education, which is the pursuit of truth and imparting of knowledge devoid of political ideological or other biases to their students, because the students of these universities are the leaders of the next generation. What's happening, I believe, that they are being brainwashed about a lot of things, but in particular being brainwashed about Israel and anti-Semitism. So you have these pro-Palestinian rallies at major universities and uh, I think it speaks ill of the future of the United States and speaks ill of the future of Western democracy. If students now are being brainwashed primarily against Israel and against Jews, it's not just an Israeli and a Jewish problem. I think it's a problem of Western society. Uh, Having said that, thanks for listening. Jay Shapiro, signing off.